You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Hello and welcome to another edition of Special Reports on Legal Talk Network. This is Lawrence Coletti and I'm the host for today's show, which is being recorded on location at the 2015 Annual Florida Bar Convention in the amazing Boca Raton Resort and Club, which is, of course, in Boca Raton, Florida. We're here to cover this event and its highlights for you, our listeners. And joining me now, I have two guests. I have Mr. Bob Hoyle and Miss Mia Tell. Welcome to the show. Thank, Thank you. you. Well, before we get started on our topic today, I want to have you both introduce yourselves and uh, tell us where you're from and what you do. So we'll start, uh, ladies first, we'll start with Mia. Lawrence, thank you for inviting us. I have been a Florida Supreme Court certified circuit civil and family court mediator since 1990. I am the chair-elect of the ADR section of the Florida Bar. I formerly served as the president of the Florida Academy of Professional Mediators, which is the largest statewide organization of both attorney and non-attorney mediators. I currently serve on the Florida Supreme Court Mediator Ethics and Advisory Committee, which renders advisory opinions to mediators who write in and ask questions, and then we respond and give them uh, ethical answers. I also served for many years on the Florida Supreme Court ADR Rules and Policy Committee, which has looked at rules of procedure and statutory changes that affect the alternative dispute resolution process. Excellent. And Bob? I practice in the uh, Tampa Bay area and have been a certified mediator since 1999. As Mia indicated, I am the chairman of the Florida ADR section. It's comprised of over a thousand members who are attorneys that also either mediators or practice in the mediation area. I'm the chair of the Manatee County uh, Mediator Section and uh, certified circuit court mediator, county court mediator, appellate mediator. I'm also a qualified mediator in the state of Alabama. Excellent. So I have, according to the literature here, the seminar that uh, you are both speaking at is titled Arbitration, Effective Joint Opening Sessions and Ethical Issues for Mediators and Attorneys. So, uh, and I don't know who feels more comfortable talking about this. Could we get a 50,000 foot uh, description of what this seminar was all about? The arbitration panel, which was composed of Jesse Diner, who's the one of the former presidents of the Florida Bar, Michael Lacks, who is the former chair of the ADR section of the Florida Bar section, and Adele Stone, who is a very prominent arbitrator and prominent lawyer in the state of Florida, basically gave people an overview about the new revised arbitration code. We have a Florida arbitration code, and that was recently revised in July of 2013. So they talk basically about the benefits of arbitration, why it is something that people should consider doing. And that statute involves private arbitrations, either uh, arising out of arbitration clauses in contracts or where people voluntarily agree that they want to use binding arbitration as an alternative to dispute resolution. Adele is a transactional attorney And she spoke about the importance of drafting the arbitration clauses in contracts, how important it is to be specific, how you can delegate issues to the arbitrator that ordinarily would be decided by the court. I thought that they did a fabulous job, and there were some very, very fine questions that they answered for the audience. 
Another speaker was Judge Tom Bateman. Uh, Mr. Bateman is a retired circuit judge from Leon County in Tallahassee. He spoke about the importance of the opening session uh, in a mediation. It's the joint session that occurs at the outset, and uh, the importance of that session is to permit the parties to basically engage in a dialogue back and forth uh, about the issues associated with the case that they're mediating. Uh, Mr. Bateman's presentation was very well received. He's very well respected amongst the judiciary and the attorneys around the state. Then uh, Mia and I did an ethics presentation, which is always uh, well received. And I and think uh, the title of it, just because I'd like to get the uh, the information out there, is Ethical Challenges in Mediation for Mediators and Attorneys. Yes. My theory on that has always been that if you have people leaving an ethics uh, presentation scared, then you've, you've accomplished your job because you want to point out to them issues and problems that they may not be aware of uh, in, their, in their practice. And I had several people come up to me, and uh, I had one guy just come up and kiddingly say that he didn't sleep last night because of all the points that me and I brought up regarding ethical issues. Uh, both attorneys and mediators don't realize that there are substantial ethical issues that they confront both before the mediation and, and during the mediation. I think me and I covered for the most part uh, what happens before the mediation, but you know one of, the, um, one of the problems it can create is the actual enforceability of settlement agreements. And of course, if an attorney and or a mediator creates a problem in that regard, then it can tie into malpractice, a grievance, and, and uh, other things that should be avoided by both mediators and arbitrators. So it was very well received. We had some good comments. What are some of the, uh, I mean, you, you just mentioned enforcement of a settlement agreement, but what are some of the other ethical, I guess, uh, pitfalls that attorneys can fall into in before and after uh, mediation? Well, just following up on Bob's presentation, and he had some wonderful materials that I would commend everybody to um, look at. But for instance, many, many people don't realize that the case law in Florida is such that if you provide in an agreement that there's going to be a release and you don't specify what that release will be, those agreements are not enforceable. So one of Bob's articles has to do with coming to mediation with the releases or at the very least being sure in your settlement agreements that you have defined what kinds of releases the parties are going to be exchanging. Because if you do not do that, you may not have an enforceable agreement. So, and there are other things like that that Bob brought up, which have to do with mediators who, because of what we call a clear conflict of interest, probably shouldn't have mediated the case to begin with. Yeah, people don't realize that there are, under certain circumstances, a mediation just can't occur. It's prohibited. Uh, and it's due to various conflict of interest issues that are uh, particularly uh, peculiar, if you will, to Florida rules and, and case law. And uh, again, that ties into the enforceability of settlement agreements because there's case law out there that says that if a mediation has not been conducted uh, according to the rules of the Supreme Court, it can be subject to being set aside. And one of our arguments was that if you, uh, if a mediation is conducted uh, that shouldn't have been conducted, then 
it's, it's violative of the rules and could possibly lead to it being uh, set aside. But to your other point, um, I think that uh, the pitfalls, as you say, for um, attorneys in particular, uh, just kind of dovetails with what Mia was just saying, which is if you got a, for example, a, a settlement agreement that all of a sudden has issues associated with enforceability or being set aside, and you could have prevented that uh, on behalf of your client by knowing the rules, uh, you got a, I think you got a problem. So it's a matter of um, just knowing what's going on. And, and again, part of the goal I think me and I had yesterday was to have people leave with a greater concern for the methods by which they are uh, practicing their mediation work. One of the other things that I spoke about is in 2011, we had a major change to one of our rules of civil procedure. And so it's really important for attorneys to be familiar with that particular rule of civil procedure because our courts require people to appear at mediation, not just the parties, but uh, insurance adjusters with full and complete authority to settle. And there is a process for certifying who's coming to the mediation and that they have full and complete authority to settle. If you don't file that certification and somebody says that you didn't come to the mediation with people who could really settle the case with full and complete authority and you don't file that certificate, the presumption is you didn't come with the full and complete authority. Oh, wow. And, and so that is something that lawyers really need to make sure that they do. So we were really orienting our uh, presentation both to attorneys and to mediators uh, because we thought that that would be helpful. And I think people took away a lot of important points. And the other thing is judges are sanctioning people, by the way, if they do not appear at mediation. And so I discussed a case that just came out on June 17th where the mediator ended up getting 3000 over $3,200. And the issue had to do with the parties not appearing at mediation. Well, it sounds very important to know uh, these uh, changes and uh, how it affects your client and, and uh, also to give you the heads up on steps you need to take to be prepared. But uh, yeah, we talked earlier, right before the interview, about some of the differences between Florida and some of the other states that have alternative dispute resolution as part of their overall legal uh, fabric. And so I wanted to talk, you guys, you brought up a, uh, you brought up a concept, this uh, mandatory non-binding arbitration. And so uh, just for the benefit, I mean, I know that probably Florida lawyers are familiar with it, but for the benefit of our listeners outside the state of Florida, can you tell me a little bit about how that works? Okay, well, we have a Florida statute, which is called Chapter 44, and that's our court-connected mediation and arbitration statute. In Chapter 44, a court can order parties to mandatory non-binding arbitration. So that's an alternative in lieu of ordering parties to mediation. Most judges are familiar with mediation now. Before you can get a case tried, the judge is sending you to mediation. But there are some other judges who think that sending parties to mandatory non-binding arbitration is also a very effective case management tool and very effective 
in terms of getting parties to resolve their cases. So in Broward County, we have an administrator who's collecting statistics, and she's found that when judges issue orders sending parties to mandatory non-binding arbitration, and the arbitrator renders the award, about 40% of the parties that have been sent are in effect are in fact accepting the arbitrator's award. So that's 40% of the judges' cases that they've sent that they don't have to try. And a lot of parties, rather than even go to arbitration, they'll go to mediation first, even though they've been ordered to arbitration, and they'll settle the cases. It's very judge-dependent. Some judges really like mandatory non-binding arbitration. Other judges aren't sending cases. I would tell you that probably... Almost all of our personal injury protection cases, which are cases that involve very small amounts of money, our, our judges are sending those cases to mandatory non-binding arbitration. But the reason it's non-binding is because, because of people's right to a trial, right to due process. You can't force the parties to accept the arbitrator's award. So that's why it's mandatory non-binding. Well, that's really interesting. So our, the attorneys obviously know about this, so they know which judges are friendly to arbitration and which ones maybe are perceived as not so friendly to arbitration. Is that affecting the courts that they're willing to participate in? Is it affecting practices, and, and is it affecting plaintiffs? Well, I think that that has happened. I mean, we certainly have judges who are sending, as I said to you, all of those PIP cases. And in the, in the beginning, I think... The attorneys and the parties were not very happy about having to go through that process because they saw that as an extra step and added expense. But the reality is, even though they might go to the judge and say, Judge, hey, listen, we want to file a motion to dispense with this, most of the judges were saying, no, you have to go. And it's the same thing with mediation. You can actually file a motion and ask the judge to dispense with mediation. But I think it is a very hard thing to do once a, a judge thinks that that's a good alternative dispute resolution process to convince them to the contrary. As a matter of fact, in Florida, which we proudly think of ourselves as a cutting-edge state in the field of ADR, domestic violence cases, many people might say, why are the judges sending those? In our state, the judges are sending cases that have domestic violence issues in the family arena to mediation, and you have to file a motion to dispense with mediation. So the concept here is that those processes are very worthwhile, and parties should engage in those processes before they litigate their cases. Well, you mentioned statistics, and so this is one of the things I'm always curious about when it comes to, because I'm a lawyer, I, uh, I'm interested in the expenses that are saved by having these uh, procedures put into place. So mandatory, non-binding, arbitration. I mean, I hear extra step. I do believe, of course, in arbitration, but are you finding that it's lowering the cost of having disputes and trials for clients and uh, plaintiffs, defendants? Well, just to um, explain a little bit of how mandatory non-binding arbitration works and kind of tell you about what Adele spoke about, which is private arbitration. I think that the whole concept of mandatory non-binding arbitration is for the judge to send you to somebody who can give you a good evaluation of what will happen, what they think would happen in your case, given a very abbreviated process. So most mandatory non-binding arbitrations don't last for days. Um, they are 
two hours, three hours. You're presenting all kinds of information to the arbitrators. Many times there is no live testimony. The arbitrator is just looking at depositions. And then they're giving you, in effect, what you might think of as an advisory kind of opinion. Uh, obviously, in mandatory non-binding, the rules of evidence don't apply, so the arbitrators are considering certain things that might not uh, come in at the time of trial. But the idea is to have the parties present, see that the arbitrators are giving good thought to the issues in the case, and perhaps they can buy into accepting the arbitrator's award. And as I said, about 40% of the parties, and it has to be both sides, agree to accept an arbitrator's award. Adele spoke about private arbitration, which is not under Chapter 44. It's not court-ordered. It's parties who are uh, either by virtue of an arbitration clause in a contract or later on decide that it makes sense to arbitrate, deciding to use that alternative approach. She spoke about the cost-saving factors uh, and the fact not only that you're saving money, but because it's a more streamlined process and it's an equitable process as opposed to a legal process. But the reality is it's a lot easier to get your dispute heard by an arbitrator or an arbitration panel because of the delays in getting set for trial in Florida. And our courts are backlogged, both our federal courts and our state courts. So in the sense that you're moving more quickly in the sense that the arbitrators are encouraging the attorneys to work together and agree on facts that are in dispute, agree on legal issues, it is really uh, a cost-saving factor. So what about uh, client satisfaction? I've noticed uh, in my practice that uh, you know when you bring people to the table and they have a larger role in resolving their own dispute, you know, whether it's mediation or whether it's arbitration, they're more involved, you're hearing the other side, there's more communication, and, and there isn't that, I feel it's kind of an unfortunate but often necessary part that goes along with legal representation. The client is disconnected from the process and doesn't, maybe perhaps doesn't feel as involved because there's a bunch of rules that they don't understand, and the attorney is a guide walking them through this journey to get to an answer. But how are you finding, this is a question for both of you, how are you finding you know, as, as uh, mediation arbitration develop in Florida, are we having greater client satisfaction because they're getting to their own answer, their own solution to a problem? Satisfaction, I really don't know that I can speak to. Uh, I've had parties comment after mediations that they enjoy the opportunity to, uh, to speak their mind, so to speak. Uh, one problem you sometimes run into is there's a certain reticence by attorneys to permit their clients to uh, engage in the process to talk uh, because they don't know what, what they're going to say to a great degree. I do my best when I have a joint session in a mediation to engage the parties in the, in the, in the chat. After the attorney has had an opportunity to give an opening, I begin addressing myself to the parties individually and again try to engage them in the process and in the best case scenario uh, enhance the opportunity for the parties to begin communicating across the table one with the other. Uh, Sometimes that's a balancing act in terms of uh, controlling acrimony and uh, resentment 
but if you can uh, really get them communicating, because we all know that most disputes arise from a lack of communication in some fashion. Uh, I do a lot of probate mediation, and often it's brother and sister, uh, relatives in some fashion that three years ago were you know, having barbecues together, and now they're at odds over money. Uh, I, I've always found the underlying theme there is they want to get along. You know, they recall that positive relationship, but something has brought them together in an adversarial situation. And I've often taken the parties alone to uh, to a individual caucus, just just us, and get them talking back and forth. Uh, so coming back to your original question, I would have to say that parties are more satisfied and pleased with the process when they are given the opportunity to speak their mind. One, one thing that I emphasize is I try to get them to listen to understand and not listen to reply. I think that's a, a big factor in, in mediation work. That's a good way to put it. That is a great way to put it because mm-hmm. I, I feel that some of my lawyer friends are listening to respond to what I just said as opposed to listen understand. But uh, mm-hmm. Mia, what do you think about that? Um, I agree with Bob. I think what's so important to people in alternative dispute resolution is really the opportunity to be heard, to have somebody that they think is neutral and impartial who is really listening to them. And I find that in arbitration. The bottom line is if people feel that you have been respectful, you have listened to them, you have heard their point of view, they are more likely to accept what the arbitrator awards. And arbitration is really, you're getting a decision. Whether it's binding or it's non-binding, you're getting a decision from some third party. So, and it's the same thing in mediation. I remember when I was a very young mediator and I started in 1990, I mediated a very, very difficult case and one of the parties was crying and the attorney who was representing one of the parties was very disturbed that I allowed the client to cry and he really was very disturbed by the whole emotional content of it. It was a family case. And he went to my boss and he said, what kind of a mediator is she? You know, she let these people cry. And he, he turned to the lawyer and he said, well, did she settle the case? And people need to be heard. Sometimes they, we call it venting. They need to express their emotions in order to be able to take a different approach and move forward and be able to settle their cases. They need to be able to express how they feel and they need somebody who they feel is listening and sympathetic or empathetic to them. Then they can take the next step and make what we would call a business decision, whether or not they want to resolve a case in a given way and basically end the litigation and end the acrimony. So I think that's one of the important functions that we serve as mediators. Uh, we, We listen to people and we give them that opportunity to express themselves. And I think that's very critical in terms of settling cases. Because it is a process of self-determination. And every, every state that has mediation rules, uh, I know, has that as the general uh, idea. You know, you're giving people the opportunity to decide on their own uh, whether they want a negotiated agreement or a litigated result. 
So it, it's, a, it's a great process, and as Mia says, uh, it, it has quite the cathartic benefit to the participants. I wanted to just add something. My passion is bilingual mediation. I speak Spanish, and that affords a wonderful opportunity for people because we have some people who really are not comfortable uh, participating in mediations in English. It's their second language, and so if you have a bilingual mediator, that person really can communicate one-on-one -on -one with the mediator, and it's a very important opportunity. Obviously, in the courthouse, you can't conduct litigation in Spanish, but you can participate in Spanish in a mediation with a bilingual mediator. And sometimes I've done it actually with everybody speaking Spanish and the entire mediation has been in Spanish. So mediation's a creative process. It involves um, sometimes creating solutions that aren't even available in the legal system. People can agree to do things that they could not obtain if they went into a court of law. So that's also a tremendous benefit to mediation. Well, I have one last question for both of you. And so I, this is a two-part question. And because we're here at the 2015 annual Florida Bar Convention, I just wanted to ask you, what was your biggest takeaway from your seminar? And why should members of the bar be participating here now, uh, coming to future seminars that you'll be putting on? My biggest takeaway from our seminar was that attorneys and mediators are not aware of some of the issues that we raised uh, that can have a negative impact on their on their work. And uh, again, ethics is a creature of its own. Uh, you mentioned that. You mentioned the word grievance. You mentioned the word malpractice and you somehow get their attention. Uh, but ethics is not something that people sit around and read like case law. So I felt like we did a good job educating the participants as to what some of the risks are if they don't know the rules, if they don't know the case law, and if they don't think in terms of, in particular, conflicts of interest, but also, as Mia said, the uh, complying with the rule on having the authority to, to be there. Do you agree, Mia? Yes, thank you. Okay. Well, it looks like we've reached the end of our program for today, but I want to thank our guests, Mr. Bob Hoyle and Ms. Mia Tell, for joining us today. And if our listeners want to reach out, learn a little bit more about what we've talked about, how can they get a hold of you? Via email with me, it's B-H-O-Y-L-E at HoyleFirm, H-O-Y-L-E-F-I-R-M.com. Bob, if you could just repeat the section's uh, website. Oh, yes. For those folks who are uh, our section has a website. It's www.fladr.org. Okay, And um, my contact information is Mia, M E A H T E L L, at gmail.com. And thank you, Lawrence, for hosting yeah, us thank today. Thank you very much. Well, it's we our pleasure. We appreciate the invitation. Well, this has been another edition of Special Reports. I'm Lawrence Coletti. Until next time, thank you for listening. 
The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thank you.